Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. We have a ton of topics to get through uh, today, but let me start, John, with a brief that we filed uh, this week uh, at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And this was in the en banc case uh, that we have uh, coming up in Cargill uh, v. United States. Those of you who have been following uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, for a while know that uh, we have been, well, we started in the Western District of Texas uh, with this case. Uh, This is one of our bump stock cases representing Michael Cargill, who uh, owns a gun store in Austin, Texas, and uh, was the the owner of a bump stock and had to turn it over to surrender it to the ATF, who agreed to to keep it until the end of, of litigation in case he wins, which I think he will eventually. And uh, we uh, we lost at the Western District of uh, of Texas, John. We took it to the Fifth Circuit. We did not draw a great panel at the Fifth Circuit, and we lost at the Fifth Circuit uh, as well. But we have now had the opportunity for the Fifth Circuit to they've agreed to rehear the case uh, on Bach, and that's coming up in September. Right, the oral argument date it's a Tuesday. It's this I think it's the second Tuesday in September. I can't remember if that's the twelfth or thirteenth, something like that. In any event, uh, uh, Rich, Rich Samp, our colleague, will be arguing uh, that case in New Orleans in front of the, the Fifth Circuit. But we filed our supplemental brief uh, this past week uh, in that case, uh, you know, spelling out all of the reasons why ATF does not have uh, the power to, to ban uh, bump stocks. And, and John, the Fifth Circuit will be the third U.S. Court of Appeals to hear this issue on Bonk. But it could be the first to actually reach the merits of the case. Right. Well, and there's been some uh, very close splits on this issue as well. It's not it. They, no, none of them have really found it that cut and dried. That's right. Which I guess is why three of them have agreed to take it on Bach and the Sixth Circuit, as you alluded to, they split eight to eight on the same set of questions that are at stake here. And that that case, uh, Gun Owners of America, were the were the plaintiffs in that case. It's now pending at the U.S. A Supreme Court, they have a cert petition uh, pending. And then our earlier case that we had in the 10th Circuit, uh, listeners will recall that uh, we argued that uh, in Denver, or actually, I think it was argued remotely, but the 10th Circuit sits in Denver in any way. Exactly. In any event. Somebody was probably in Denver. Yeah, someone was probably in Denver. <laughs> Maybe some, 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 some court, uh, court personnel or something. But in any event, uh, after we argued that, and this was new to me, I hadn't seen this happen before, after we argued the case, the en banc was dismissed as improvidently granted over five dissents. And so we have appealed that case uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that has been sitting with the court for, well, we filed it last August. So I know that wasn't when we originally filed the cert petition. Obviously, the government hadn't replied yet and so forth. But that was fully briefed by November or December. And it's, it's last been, year of last year. Exactly. It's been sitting at the Supreme Court uh, ever since. So. The, the, the court obviously is aware of it and is taking an interest in it, and maybe they're waiting to see what the Fifth Circuit does, because there isn't 
a circuit split on this on this set of issues uh, in these cases yet, John, because the Sixth Circuit, by splitting eight to eight, the Sixth Circuit panel, by the way, had ruled the way we wanted it, it to. It, it, it had been willing to set aside the bump stock ban as as being outside of, of ATF's uh, statutory uh, purview. Uh, and then that went on bonk. And because it was split eight to eight, and this has always mystified me, but instead of upholding the panel decision, it upholds the district court decision. I understand when a case goes on bonk that, that the panel decision is vacated, but you would think that if if you uh, if you were you would think the second best alternative would be the panel outcome from the circuit rather than the district court. But I guess that you at least uh, I guess that the, they, they by going on bonk they don't have a precedent. They don't have the a circuit. precedent. I think yeah. it is an eight to eight. I mean, it's like Maxwell Smart missed it by that much, right? <laughs> <laughs> How close can you get? Yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, but the the issue uh, that we have in in Cargill is a little bit different than those. Than those other issues, uh, than those other two cases, uh, Gun Owners of America and Apotian, because at least the cert petitions pending at the Supreme Court in those cases involve Chevron deference and, and whether or not Chevron deference can be applied when the government disclaims deference, whether or not Chevron deference can be applied in a criminal case, and whether the rule of lenity takes precedence uh, over, uh, over Chevron deference when the two come into conflict or, or could, in theory, both, both be applied. And so the, the thing that's unique about Cargill, John, is we actually went to trial in this case. The other cases are all pending based on preliminary injunction decisions and, and those sorts of things. We actually had a trial in the Cargill case. I was there uh, and, uh, and uh, in the courtroom, and uh, uh, one of our former colleagues argued that case to the Western District uh, of Texas, and we had an expert from ATF come and admit things like you can't fire a a semi-automatic weapon equipped with a bump stock with one hand. You, you need to, or at least you can't make it fire multiple rounds uh, unless you, you have two, you know, two hands uh, involved. And, uh, uh, and those sort of factual things, just they're not really in the other cases that went forward on the preliminary injunction basis. So it could even be that the Supreme Court is waiting on this case because it has gone to trial and they don't like to do things that are, that are in a preliminary injunction sort of uh, posture. But what we have uh, what we have alleged is that the final rule conflicts with the statutory definition of a machine gun and therefore it exceeds ATF's authority uh, to to redefine agencies uh, can't just redefine statutes. That's not within their within their capability, particularly when Congress has not given ATF rulemaking authority. And ATF agrees that Congress hasn't given it rulemaking authority. And that's why it says, oh, we're not doing, you know, we're this rule is just an interpretive rule. We're just interpreting the statute. We're not doing anything legislative here. We're not, we're not coming up with new law. That the law has always been this way, even though for over a decade, uh, ATF had said that that non-mechanical bump stocks and, and mean, they meaning bump stocks without springs were were fine. And they disclaimed Chevron. <laughs> they they also yeah, that's right. They did disclaim Chevron in our case. But the reason why it's not front and center in our case is because uh, unlike the other places where the government disclaimed. Uh, deference uh, that the district judge here didn't apply Chevron deference and neither did the Fifth Circuit panel. They, they both sort of respected that decision or at least at least didn't reach the question of def Chevron deference because they said that the that the statute was clear uh, essentially at Chevron step one. And so they didn't need to reach the, the deference question. I think it's quite odd to find a statute clear at Chevron step one when an agency interpreted it one way for over a decade and then recently 
in response to uh, pressure from the president and, and members of Congress changed its understanding of the meaning of the statute. Obviously, there had to be some ambiguity, at least, or it was clear before, which is what we say, uh, and it's only the, the sort of the, the political pressure that's trying to force ATF to muddy the waters here. But uh, in any event, uh, you know, we do argue that uh, in, in case the court were tempted to go another way, that, that the construction is not entitled to Chevron deference. To the extent that the courts uh, determine that there is you know, ambiguity in the statute, that they should apply the rule of lenity because uh, this is a case with criminal implications. Uh, and, and if you apply the rule of lenity, then you would, you would determine that bump stocks are not machine guns. And then finally, we say, look, if the statute were interpreted as authorizing ATF's declaration that bump stocks are prohibited machine guns, then it would be an unconstitutional delegation of Congress's legislative powers. Because John, you can't have a statute that says this is illegal or this is not illegal and you, the agency, get to pick whether this is legal or illegal. That No, 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 no. It's the job of Congress to define what counts as violating uh, the criminal law. And if this delegation to ATF is so broad that it both allows them to say that bump stocks are legal and allows them to say which they were doing for over a decade, and allows them now to say the bump stocks are illegal, then that really looks like an unconstitutional delegation of Congress's legislative powers. I, now, I don't know that the Fifth Circuit on Bonk is going to want to reach that non-delegation issue. I would invite them to do so, John. Yes. But, uh, but I think that, that they may well decide that they can, they can either decide this on a sort of statutory construction basis, that the statute was clear and ATF is, is, uh, is sort of... Uh, uh, on a frolic and detour here with its uh, with its adventuresome interpretation uh, of the statute, or else they might apply the rule of lenity and say, look, if there is uh, ambiguity here, we don't even need to get to Chevron deference because the rule of lenity is a traditional canon of statutory construction. We're going to apply that before we ever consider uh, the ambiguity. And once we apply the rule of lenity, there is no ambiguity. Have any of these cases, I, I haven't followed as closely as you, Mark, have any of them noted that the military tribunal that looked at this said that it's not a machine gun? Have, have they, have, why have they just ignored that case? Well, I think some of them have ignored it because of timing. So Apochian, for example, that case from the, uh, from, the, from the Navy Marine Court Court of Appeals hadn't come down yet. Alcazag, I think, is the name of that, uh, of that case. I can't recall whether Alcazag had come down in time for the Sixth Circuit panel decision. I believe it had come down in time for the en banc, and I believe uh, we... Uh, I haven't looked at that in a while, but I believe that, that, the, uh, that the eight justices who voted uh, against the ATF in that case did cite okay. Alcazag. Uh, certainly we cited in our brief right. uh, to, the, to the Fifth Circuit en banc, and I would be surprised if the Fifth Circuit doesn't uh, point out the fact that, hey, the military judges don't think that, that bump stocks uh, turn semi-automatics into machine guns, and they might know something about machine guns. <laughs> Although I, I should add, John, that our district court judge in the Western District of Texas, Judge Ezra, uh, was uh, spent uh, a fair bit of time at trial letting us know that he was, I believe, an ex-Marine and had fired a machine gun many times. I don't know that he's ever fired a semi-automatic with a bump stock, though. So you, know, you, you have to do both to really understand the difference uh, between them. But he did play up his, uh, uh, you know, his extrajudicial expertise, uh, if you will. Uh, but in any event, uh, the, the, what, the, what Judge Ezra said in this case was that it was clear that uh, ATF's interpretation was correct. And, you know, uh, the vast majority of appellate judges who have considered that question haven't haven't come down that way. As I mentioned, the the Tenth Circuit and the and the Sixth Circuit judges and the D.C. Circuit judges they had all gone the Chevron route to say it's ambiguous. 
but if we apply Chevron, then you win. None of them had, had, had said, oh, it's so obvious. And we'll see what the Fifth Circuit does. I think I think we're in good good shape, John, and we'll keep folks uh, keep folks surprised. But oral argument will be the same. next case we're going to discuss is not one of ours, but I thought it was kind of a fun case in administrative law, and it had to do with fireworks out in, in, at Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, and I happened to be out in Mount Rushmore for this 4th of July. So not, I, not on Mount Rushmore. Not on Mount Rushmore. No, I was, not in, yet. I was in the town of Custer to watch <laughs> the fireworks because I couldn't watch them at Mount Rushmore, and we'll <laughs> talk about that in a minute. So uh, this case is uh, one of these fun cases with a fun fact pattern. Uh, and Governor Kristi Noem, uh, in her official capacity as the governor of South Dakota, sued Deb Haaland, uh, who's in her official capacity as the United States Secretary of the Interior and a bunch of other folks in the Parks Department. And the, um, the, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe uh, intervened because they didn't want the fireworks either. And then Amici, uh, uh, on behalf of uh, South Dakota, were a bunch of states, states of Kansas, Alabama, a bunch, a bunch of states on their behalf, and then the National Parks Conservation Association on, on behalf of the government. Glad, but, glad to see Kansas on the right side of an issue for a change. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what happened? And, and the judges are all uh, pretty good administrative law judges, Benton, Shepard, and Strauss, and the opinions by Strauss. And the fireworks uh, were prohibited uh, July 2021. So this isn't 2022, but last year. And the Parks Department and Interior uh, said no, no fireworks in Mount Rushmore. And, and remember, there were fireworks in 2020 because Trump was there, right? right. So there for was 11 some... years, there were. It okay. wasn't just a years. Trump thing. They allowed it for some years. Gotcha. Okay. So for 11 years, Mount Rushmore played host to Fourth of July fireworks shows. Unfortunately, the visitor safety and fire danger concerns put the practice on hold. Then a decade later, the Park Service changed courts and granted a permit that said it was for the year 2020 and did not mean an automatic renewal of the event in the future. So that's what happened. It had been allowed and it stopped. Then in 2021, South Dakota tried again and the Park Service denied the request and it cited, and this is important, COVID risks, concerns about tribal relationship effects, um, tribal relationships, effects on other Mount Rushmore visitors, and then, in pro and then an in-progress construction project. Uh, I'm sorry, effects on other Mount Rushmore visitors. You mean all those people visiting Mount Rushmore who hate fireworks? Yeah, exactly. I'm confused who that's referring to. And then in progress, construction project, and ongoing monitoring of water contamination and wildfire risk. So uh, it's important because they've asked for an injunction. What the, what South Dakota asked for was an injunction and a removal. And this is this that they wanted on non-delegation grounds. Mark was just talking about non-delegation, but they wanted non delegation grounds that the permitting system, uh, Congress hadn't delegated this power so that so the permitting structure had to be struck down. And that's going to be important in a minute. But but let me uh, let me let me explain the procedure real quickly. Um, 
So it, it asked for injunctive, South Dakota asked for injunctive and declaratory relief. It sought an injunction, quote, ordering the Park Service to issue the request, requested permit and it requested a declaration that the denial was arbitrary and capricious and that, quote, the statutes granting the Park Service permitting authority are unconstitutional for want of an intelligible principle. So what that means is that the permitting structure would be struck down. So South Dakota files a preliminary injunction. The district court denies it because there'd been no showing South Dakota was likely to succeed on the merits. So five weeks later, South Dakota asked the court to convert its order denying a preliminary injunction into a final judgment. And the district court said, all right, I'll do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still live because January 4th of July is over, but I'll go ahead and grant it because the non-delegation issue presented a non-moot appealable issue. So this is important. We are always trying to avoid mootness and standing and all, all of these ways. Well, that, we don't want to avoid standing. Well, exactly. But, <laughs> but the, the bars, we're, yes. we try to avoid the bars to getting into court. And so when I saw this case, I thought, uh-oh, uh, Strauss is a guy who knows his stuff. Let's go see what was happening here. And I think what we're going to find out is be careful what you ask for. Uh, when you're when you're litigating these cases, because, always good advice because it becomes very important. We begin with the part of the case the district court thought was moot, the arbitrary and capricious challenge, and there um, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, that the July Fourth had passed, and and th there'll be other July Fourths, but the reasons for the denial could be different. They the the court in the Eighth Circuit does not feel that COVID will be an, a reason later on. And um, they also agreed that... Um, the, the COVID thing, by the way, seems to me to be a bit of a right. red herring in the yeah. sense that COVID it's outdoors. was... Well, it was outdoors and COVID was was alive and well in 2020 when they when they had the fireworks. That That is true, but nonetheless, but it was early. It was early days, I guess. Maybe, who knows? But the point is, it wouldn't be... It was something that, that the court felt... And, and also the construction project that might go away. So there, there were things that were uh, too generous just to that denial. And so um, in the future, it may be some combination of these regions or and none that's of That's SUI, not SIOU. That is correct. <laughs> it, so they, they, the court said, listen, it, it, they might do this again, but you can come get us. You're South Dakota. You know when 4th of July is. It's not a big problem. And uh, we need to have a contemporaneous explanation in the light of the existing administrative record. And they had just ruled this in 2019. So what they're doing is backing up their precedent. But this isn't the exciting part of it. So it, what Strauss says about it, just on mootness for all of you here, I think this is a very good sentence if, if, about how this works. The bottom line is that we cannot change what happened last year. And South Dakota has not demonstrated that deciding this otherwise moot case will impact any future permitting decision. They had to show, and he says, any controversy has, in other words, fizzled out. And there's a lot of fireworks <laughs> related uh, stuff in this opinion, uh, which does make it fun. I love and so then comes the part that I think is exciting uh, for non-delegation, because non-delegation is now in the air again after Gundy. And how, how does Gundy work out? In the air again, I see you did their job. Uh -huh. The non-delegation <laughs> challenge presents a closer call, but it too suffers from a jurisdictional flaw. And here's another one of those jurisdictional flaws that we always try to avoid, and we will use this case to avoid it, I think. This time, however, the problem is standing, not mootness. It's, it calls it a close cousin of mootness. I don't know. Maybe they're kissing cousins. Who knows? But the thing is, so 
So here's the problem for South Dakota is redressability because they had said that uh, that the declaration it seeks is that, quote, the statutes granting the Park Service permitting authority are unconstitutional for want of an intelligible principle. But that, he says, can't help them. And that's because the nature of the challenge itself. Usually, in many non-delegation cases, an agency is already regulating the party who sues. And they give some example. In those types of cases, a favorable decision on non-delegation challenge will remove the obstacle. They'll stop regulating you. This case is different in an important way. So facts matter, This even to appellate courts, which we sometimes don't <laughs> believe, but it's true. Nobody has a right to shoot off fireworks on someone else's land, whether it be a neighbor, an area of business, or as the case here, a national park. And then he actually cites a case from 1897. <laughs> I, I would think the proposition would, would need no, no further uh, explanation, but he's got an 1897 case. The, the government really didn't want 1897 fireworks being set up on no, your property. <laughs> the government has, with respect to its own lands, the rights of an ordinary proprietor to maintain its possession and to prosecute trespassers. Each of these each of these situations requires permission, and for a national park, the way to get it is a permit. And he cites the CFR. With no substitute, doing away with this process will only make it harder, not easier, for South Dakota to remedy its claimed injury. Don't just take our word for it. Despite giving both parties a chance to file supplemental briefs on jurisdiction, South Dakota still cannot explain how giving it the declaratory relief it seeks will make fireworks show at Mount Rushmore any more likely. So they gave them another chance. So it's both what was asked for in the complaint and then supplemental briefing. I mean, they, the court couldn't have done a lot more here, I yeah, think. Yeah. I, I really think. Um, so the problem with South Dakota's reading is that this passage, they're talking about cellular law that it changed um, the standard for, for standing. But what he says is they didn't change the, the, the traceability part. Um, right. Yeah. They changed uh, traceability, not redressability. Right. This is redressability. Yeah. And he says traceability is about the connection between the unlawful conduct and the injury. Whereas the redressability focuses on the next step in the analysis, which is the link between the injury and the remedy. And although the two concepts occasionally overlap, nothing in Celia law, law suggests that a plaintiff is relieved of the burden of showing that a favorable decision will likely redress, redress its injury. And he cites California versus Texas from, from last term in the, in the Supreme Court. I don't think he had to cite anything. I mean, they're not going to grant you orders if they won't help anything. That's, that's just not going to happen. And so, um, and so he then um, says that, look, it's different. If we did this, this would be an advisory opinion on an abstract proposition of law, so we can't do it. So when I saw the reports of this case, Mark, I was like, oh, no. This is going to be bad. They're going to they're going to put up another obstacle to standing and to mootness. But I don't right, think it does right, stretch the law to right. keep from deciding something. I, I, I think that you got to You do have to say when you say something's repeatable, how it's going to be repeated. And if there's a bunch of different um, reasons the agency gives, the courts under under uh, arbitrary and capricious has to look at the reasons the agency. That's the standard under the APA. They they have no choice but to look at what the agency said it was doing for the reasons it was doing it. And if they're going to change those reasons, the court has to look at them again. So it probably is a little bit of a dodge. I don't think that the, 
the, the Sioux tribes or uh, the other visitors who don't like fireworks are going to change. I don't, I think they'll always be around if they really don't want fireworks at Rushmore, but the mix is how arbitrary and capricious gets decided. So I, I don't think that hurts the law. I think that's what the law was and the traceability. I think it was just a very um, logical exposition of what you asked for. And the judge, the judges of the eighth circuit, what are they saying? They're saying, Okay, if we give you everything you want, we give you the world. We're the genie in the bottle, right? And we pop out and we say, okay, we'll grant your wish. What do you want? No permitting system. No permitting system. It's like one of those fables, you know, where you get what you want. <laughs> and then you're still not on that with, your, with your M80s. And that's the box So anyway, uh, interesting case. Fun case to read and a short case to read. Uh, no, there's no talent.